What the nurses saw, it was murder. Those words from a powerful new book that examines the COVID protocols by those who were censored and silenced. Next. Ken McCarthy is my guest. He is the author of What the Nurses Saw, a, quote, investigation into the systemic medical murders that took place in hospitals during the COVID panic and the nurses who fought back to save their patients. Ken, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I know you saw the warning signs very early on in all of this, it sounds like, but take us back. It was the winter of 2020, I understand. And and what first raised alarm uh, for you back, back then, Ken? Well, two things. The news was coming out of China, and anybody that thinks the news coming out of China is straight is is uh, profoundly uh, misled. And second, the news was coming out of uh, was being relayed through China through the U.S. mainstream news media, and anybody that thinks any story that comes on those screens can be trusted uh, is misled. So that's like a double or a, or a squared, a problem squared. I also, I'm not a, a scientist, but I did study biology in school and I do have common sense and nothing they were saying made sense. They were showing videos of people falling over in the street and people going into contortions on hospital gurneys. That has nothing to do with respiratory disease. So the whole thing, it, it struck me as a, as a vaccine, uh, a early winter uh, vaccine promo for, for uh, the flu shot. You also, I know, say that you've never seen anything on this kind of scale before as far as people uh, working where they had no business uh, working. If you're a doctor in another country and you move to the U.S. and you want to practice medicine, you have to jump through 10 million hoops before you're allowed to do that. They waived all that. So anybody who could pretend to have an MD degree anywhere in the world, and these people were not vetted very well, were shipped to the United States to work in these COVID hospitals. Uh, and many of them were not even ICU doctors. They were podiatrists, gynecologists, whatever. And you cannot jump into an ICU unit without training, uh, just like you can't go to a podiatrist to get um, open heart surgery. These are specialties. They require special education, special supervision. And there were a lot of people in those ICUs that did not belong, including a lot of nurses that did not belong, nurses who had just graduated from school, nurses who had not even gotten their degrees yet. And then they made the whole thing a liability-free zone. So theoretically, at least, anything that happened in those ICUs was A-OK. And respiratory therapists were perhaps most important here, and there were few. I was told that for one entire floor of 300 patients, there was one. And when I talked to respiratory therapists, they say you need about one respiratory therapist for every two to eight patients. I know in the book you document in detail what some of these these nurses had to go through, uh, basically for blowing the whistle, the retaliation they face, I think, is pretty remarkable. But talk a, a bit about that, Ken. Well, the first thing they do, and, and let's use Nicole uh, Sorotek as, a, as an example. I know we're going to have a ton of people die. So this very experienced nurse who's worked in war zones, has worked in field hospitals for refugees in Syria, a certified air ambulance nurse, which means, you know, you fly to some remote place and keep people alive without any semblance of a hospital. So serious hardcore nurse. She went to New York, like all the original nurses, not knowing what they were going to get into because we were told it was the most deadly disease ever known to man. 
uh, and there was no cure. But but like many nurses who volunteered to do that, she went in and did it. And when she got there, she saw absolute chaos. She said uh, the the worst field hospital in the worst third world country was better run than the New York City hospitals during COVID. And remember, COVID was you know it was a it, the whole thing was a pantomime. It was a play. You know, first act was China, second act was Italy, third act was New York, and then it went to the rest of the country. Um, so the things that happened in New York were really crucial. And what they had in New York was a total shambles. They didn't have proper personnel. They didn't have proper training. They didn't have proper, proper supervision. And she saw patients being killed by incompetence every, incompetence, neglect, and uncaring and arrogance every day she was there. And their way of dealing with her, because she was outspoken, was to remove her from the ICU. So instead of having a super, she was not just an ICU nurse, she was a super ICU nurse because she's done the the, the air ambulance work where you actually have to intubate people yourself as a nurse. That's a very complex process. The average nurse can't do it. Even the average doctor can't do it. You know, it's only a pulmonologist that can do it or a respiratory therapist. So this is a very delicate, uh, dangerous procedure. She knew how to do it. And they took her out of the ICU because she was pointing out all the catastrophic mistakes and frauds that were going on. And on that note, just a censorship, uh, Ken, uh, from Google, social media in collaboration, we know now uh, with the White House and DOJ. What did you find there, though, about how big of a role censorship uh, played in in all of this? Uh, You know, I'd say for months, but really for, for years. Well, in, in, in addition to the garden variety censorship, you know, just taking videos down and, and, and my Twitter channel was banned in March of 2021. Uh, you can still read it, but I can't post to it. That has not been changed. Uh, but, but beyond that story that I think a lot of us are, are generally aware of, there was also a search and destroy mission for these nurses after they quit, those that stayed vocal. Uh, in Canada, they were, they were buried. In fact, Canadian Frontline Nurses has basically, this wonderful organization has been put out of business functionally by a mountain of government-originated lawsuits. So that's one follow-up. But, but the other thing was, they, tr- for instance, they tr- referred to Nicole a lot because she was one of the most prominent. They tracked her down. They, uh, there's a group called Team Halo, okay? Team Halo, we have video on our website, and it's in the book. Uh, the Undersecretary of Communications of the United Nations bragging about her relationship with Team Halo and TikTok that they arranged to get all the Team Halo members, theoretically doctors and nurses, uh, white-labeled so that they could post anything they wanted to on TikTok. Well, some of the Team Halo members decided to post her address. Some of them decided to issue death threats to her. Uh, some of them uh, took pictures uh, off the internet, terrible pictures of children being abused, and pasted her children's faces on them and mailed them to her house. So it wasn't enough that they quieted these nurses and wouldn't listen to them and fired them. Uh, the ones that kept speaking out, they 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 tracked down and and harassed. Nicole's had to change her name. She no longer lives under her name, and she had to move. She and her family had to move to a new house. That's how bad it was, and that was supervised and and endorsed literally by the UN. And this is kind of almost one of these crazy conspiracies that we used to talk about years ago. The UN's behind all bad things, but this is one case where absolutely direct connection to the UN and this these uh, trolls. Wow, it's hard to to even comprehend. Uh, These aren't just human errors, as you point out uh, in the book, uh, Ken, what's happening in the hospitals. You call this all 
deliberate. And I, I think this has to be a really hard pill uh, for people to, to swallow, a dark place to go. You know, you're supposed to, of course, trust trust your doctors, trust the, the medical system. But you say and really lay out the, the evidence for this that that bureaucrats uh, have really taken control uh, and, and you offer uh, proof proof of that. Well, the first thing you said something. Remember, these are not your doctors. Like You may have a personal doctor that you know. These are strangers, some of them from foreign countries, some who can barely speak English. This is a, this is an important thing to keep in mind. So hopefully you can trust your doctor that you have a relationship with him, or if you don't, find one that you can. And, and I bring this up because we all have to be aware of this. The things that were going on in these hospitals were consistent, uniform throughout the country. They were crazy. Uh, and they were enforced with an iron hand. So what that tells me is that at some point there was a bunch of people in a boardroom with a whiteboard figuring out what the protocol was going to be, not only what the protocol was going to be, but how it was going to be enforced rigidly. And the protocol was as follows. If you came in and, they, and you had some kind of respiratory problem and you tested positive for COVID, they would take you in. Uh, they would not allow you to take ibuprofen. They would not give you the normal steroids that they would normally give in a respiratory distress situation. That never made it to the news. We, we got kind of taken off the track by ivermectin, and, and that's, that's, that was an important story too. But they had banned Advil for people with inflammation. This is crazy. This is unprecedented in medicine. So what they were doing was, and this was by decree, and it was enforced rigidly and if you didn't go along with it you were fired so this somebody had to think that out somebody had to decide they were going to change medicine forever the next thing they did was immediately try to get these people on sedatives and once that you know they say oh you seem a little bit upset and let you know would you like something to help you relax that started a whole cascade of sedatives there were there were patients with covid that were given five six seven eight ten different kinds of sedatives there's the famous tragically famous case of uh, of uh, Grace Sherrar, who, who they pumped three totally contraindicated um, sedatives in her that, that eventually ended up killing her. The other thing they would do is they would put a, what's called a BiPAP on you. Now, uh, there are instances where you need a BiPAP, but it's not something that you do casually. That's number one. Number two, it is a very uncomfortable thing. It's like driving at 60 miles an hour and you stick your head out the window. That's what it feels like, except you also have a mask on your face and you're scared. The way to handle somebody on a BiPAP is to sit with them, talk with them, comfort them, explain them, give them occasional breaks every hour or two. Again, and you only do it if it's truly life and death. They were slamming those BiPAPs on everybody and giving them no explanation, no comfort, no nothing. The people would naturally get agitated. I would be, you put a mask on me and I don't, you're not telling me what to expect and I don't know how long I'm on it. Um, and they would, and they would write in the record, patient agitated and that's when all the psychoactive meds would come out and they would just pump these people with, with meds and of course they, they got paid for every positive covid case they detected they got paid for every positive covid case they brought into the hospital the next thing they wanted to do because looks like you're not doing too well because of course you're not you got this bipap on and you're freaking out no one is explaining you're, you're having an anxiety attack uh, not uncommon not unexpected and they would say, oh, well, you're not doing well. We have this handy-dandy remdesivir. Most people didn't know what remdesivir was. They'd been told it was the magic cure. It was nothing of the sort. 
It's a very dangerous drug that they tried to use in the treatment of Ebola, and they ended up just killing everybody with it. And somehow, magically, Fauci came out with it in April and declared in April, without really any testing, uh, this is the cure, this will be the only cure. And what the people in the boardroom with the whiteboard figuring out what they were doing, in order to make sure this remdesivir was consumed, they paid the hospitals. So you would get paid not to give one dose of remdesivir, but to give multiple doses, which constituted a course. Now, a dose of remdesivir is a bag that hangs and goes into an intravenous. One of the hospitals Nicole was fired at was because she refused to hang remdesivir bags because every experienced veteran nurse who somehow magically but made it to the ICU, and there were very few of them in there, instantly saw that this remdesivir was a bad thing. So they've got you on the BiPAP, they're upsetting you tremendously, they're filling you with psychoactive drugs, now they're offering you remdesivir. If you take it, you have a good chance of having organ damage. And as your health degenerates further and further, they say, wow, I don't think you're gonna make it, we really need to vent you. Now most people don't know what venting means. Venting is taking something almost the equivalent of a garden hose and sticking it down your throat into your lungs. You also have to stick a feeding tube down there. These are tricky operations, and as one of the nurses mentioned, she saw one patient killed by somebody who did it incompetently. Um, so it has to be done by a professional. It has to be done well. But the most important thing is you don't do it unless it's 1,000% necessary. This is as, as, invasive, as invasive as an operation. And even if you do everything right, you still may injure the patient. And in order to, to put somebody on a vent, it's not just a face mask. It's the, it's the thing down the throat. You have to give them paralytics. You have to knock them out so they can't move. You have to give them powerful analgesics, including fentanyl. And you have to basically knock them out so they're unconscious. So it is, it is like anesthesia. So they put them in the room, put them on the vent, and then leave them alone. There were cases where they actually had the bags, you know, the drug bags, not even in the room with the, with the patient. They'd had them in the hallway. And instead of, you're supposed to like, when you change a bag, you look at the patient. Is, is he getting better? Is he getting worse? Do I need to tell the doctor? They had some, in some extreme cases, but you know, not uncommon. They'd have the bags in the hallway with the long, um, tubes to the patient, they would change the bags without even looking at the, at the patient. Uh, the nurses I talked to said sometimes they'd come to their shift, they'd be assigned to go check on a patient. The patient had been dead for hours. Nobody even noticed. So there's, there, was the, there was the lack of skilled personnel, which was enabled by allowing any and all people with any kind of a piece of paper to work in ICUs. They were paid lavishly. Uh, the, the, the rate for a contract nurse in New York City was $10,000 a week. So who knows what the doctors were paid? Um, so, uh, so you had very poor supervision, very poor uh, personnel, uh, an uncaring attitude by a lot of the people that were working these jobs, and a liability-free zone. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you had some group figured out an insane protocol that was virtually guaranteed to kill people, and they figured out how to enforce it with an iron fist, which indeed they did. Yeah, and speaking of the censorship uh, piece, Ken, the mainstream media, uh, for the most part, uh, as you've mentioned already, has stayed silent uh, on all of this. I wanted to just highlight a couple uh, nurses we've spoken to here at uh, Alpha News, but we've given a voice in the past to some 
some of these whistleblowers. We have Gail McRae. She was a nurse in California mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. past spring we spoke with. She said she you know, always wanted to, to trust organizations like the CDC, and, and she did, and the AMA, mm-hmm. but she came to believe that the practices they were mandating uh, equated to uh, medical murder here. We have another nurse, Jenna Hadley-Johnson. She spoke out after her own father died due to COVID. He was left alone, uh, put on a ventilator, she said, without consent. Many people, though, uh, speaking out about all of this, yet it seems, for the most part, people aren't paying attention. How do you think we'll look back on, on history when it when it comes to, to all of this? And I know your book helps to, to set the record straight, too. Well, the weird thing is, this book is it. Like, there ain't no other books. I mean, there have been, there have been interviews that, you, that you've done, and, and, and a few, a handful of other people have done, but we're talking about a, a handful. So, and there have been some stories, you know, Scott Sherrar has got his story out pretty well. And then, and there's, you know, some of the nurses got some media attention, uh, but it, it, it could create the, the misapprehension that um, these are one-offs, like this is a tragedy, or this was one really bad group of doctors and nurses. The problem is this was a system in all hospitals in the United States. So if we look at some simple numbers, over 1 million people were suppo- supposedly died of COVID in the United States, which it's a whole other level of nonsense, but that's their official record. Well, one thing we know for sure is of the people they said died of COVID, over 92% of them died in a hospital. So that means we start with the number 900,000, right? Now, I'm not, I doubt that, well, I don't know. These protocols were never really called for unless it was an extreme, extreme, extreme case. So every time they put somebody through this, this, I call it the meat grinder, uh, and they died, they kind of killed them. You know, like if I come to the hospital and I, and I have a, I have a cut and I need three stitches and they decide to give me open heart surgery and I die, I think they murdered me, you know? Uh, so, so you ask about how is this story going to get out? Uh, I don't see it getting out. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. I, I, I waited. I, you know, I saw the interviews with Nicole and, and uh, uh, Aaron Marie back in 2020. I interviewed Aaron Marie in 2020. I interviewed a UK nurse in the summer of 2020. And I'm not a journalist, you know. Like, this is, I'm not going to say what I'm doing is a hobby. Well, it's a hobby in the sense I'm not getting paid, you know. But I have other things. I'm a business person. And, and you know, so I thought, well, okay, someone's going to do this. 2020, nothing. 2021, nothing. 22, nothing. Halfway through 2023, I said, I better get going because, you know, if if nobody writes the history, it didn't happen. So at least this book exists. It's a history. Uh, people are interested, like you are interested, thank goodness, uh, and others, and, and, and that's going to help. And the nurses have motivation for people to know this. And here's the other, here's the thing. The, the surviving families have a motivation to know this and spread this word. The, this catastrophe, uh, this, um, atrocity has left behind, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who have a loved one who died under suspicious circumstances at best. So this, if we can organize them, and that's one of the things I'm working to do, and I'm using the book as an organizing force, um, these families aren't going to ever forget for as long as they're alive. Let's end with some kind of hope. Uh, you say that there is a way out of this. Uh, talk about that. Okay. First of all, we all, you know, we're in the modern age now. You know, the t- we used to not have planes. Now we have planes, you know. So you just have to adapt. We all have to understand that our there is no Marcus Welby. There is, you know, unless you have a local, you know, 
doctor that you know, when you walk into a hospital, you're dealing with a stranger on a paycheck and that stranger is rigidly enforced by the hospital administrator who is answerable to the CFO, who is answerable to the head of the, you know, the hospital chain, who is following whatever the CDC says because that's how they get paid. So these guys are order followers. Um, they are not the doctors that we used to know. And a lot of these doctors, you know, they're coming out of school with, you know, $300,000, dollars $500,000 in debt. They've spent 12, 15 years getting to that point. And I'm afraid to say most of them are going to do what they're told. And we have a demonstration of that during COVID. Because, look, we can, we can sympathize with, a, with an emergency, right? New disease, new deal. No one knows what's going on. There will be a lot of mistakes made in the beginning. This protocol was enforced and repeated throughout the country tens of hundreds of thousands of times. Doctors and nurses were seeing that it wasn't working, were seeing that it was killing people, and they went along with it. So we all have to get smart. When we go into a hospital, we need to know that these are not our friends. We don't have to go in with a panic or a fear, but we have to know that. I'm working with us, uh, one of the nurses, uh, Ashley Gogg, uh, to develop a program where people can learn about the dangers of hospitals, about how to be their own advocates, and how to find a professional advocate if they get in over their head. This is something every person, every adult person needs to know. You know, you should know a little first aid. You should know how to drive a car. You should know how to boil water. You know, you should know what a hospital is and how you need to interact with it. They are not necessarily a hundred percent trustworthy from the point of view of competence or, or 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 ethics, and you just have to know that. And it's a part of our modern world. Absolutely, Ken McCarthy, the author of What the Nurses Saw. You can find the book on Amazon. But thank you, sir. Really appreciate all the time you spent talking with us. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this episode of Liz Collin Reports. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.